Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 8. I'm your host, Otis Jari. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing three stories for you about perilous prisons, oceanic oddities, and karmic repercussions. You're listening to the Standard Edition of tonight's program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us courtesy of author D. Fulkerson about the true nature of darkness 
and how to get better acquainted with it. Without further ado, I present to you The Killer's Interview. You sure you want to go in there alone? The warden was an uncompromisingly beefy man who drank, smoked, and just wanted to survive until retirement. He ran a tight, clean ship, and for his efforts, he was rewarded with the pleasure of guarding the vilest of abusers. His charges were lifers, and he had to babysit them until they died. But he wasn't paid to babysit the small, bespeckled Poindexter, with the briefcase walking next to him. Yes, the little man said, avoiding eye contact. I think he'll be less inhibited if there were no guards. That's the last thing he is. The warden growled. He could sense the tension in his men as they descended further down the basement. Do you know his story? I studied Benedict for a long time. Do you know he almost escaped once? Took only a moment. Still not sure how he did it. But he got his claws on one of my men, and... His voice trailed off as he noticed the two guards look at him. He killed them. Only took a moment. I don't know how he got to him, but he has a way of sort of hypnotizing people. He talks in a way that sucks you in. I guess that's how he got all those kids to come home with him. The little man fidgeted nervously and said nothing. The warden studied him closely. He looked woefully out of place in a dungeon like this. He belonged in an ivory tower office somewhere, writing condescending academia bullshit about the troubles of the world. They began to walk again. The guards walked slower than before, and reflexively put their hands on their weapons. So, does he say much? The little man asked. Oh, he talks all the time. I think he thinks he's some kind of prophet. Lots of biblical end-of-the-world shit. He's here for life. No chance of parole. Can't even be around other prisoners. He's in solitary 23 hours a day. He gets one hour of exercise in the yard. He stepped in front of the little man. He's got nothing to lose. The little man shuddered, but seemed determined to go on. The warden sighed. They turned down a long, deserted hallway that was dimly lit by fading fluorescent lights. There was a closed door at the end of the hall. The guards drew their weapons. Okay, the warden said. This is how it goes down. He's secured. The door will be locked from the outside the moment you go in. No way out until you hit this signal. He handed the little man a small remote. There's one camera that we'll be monitoring. No windows. It's all padded. So no sound. As you requested, we won't be listening. No audio. The guards will be with you the whole time. Lights? This remote here. Shuts the lights on and off. Not sure why you want that. Perfect the little man said. But I was promised he wouldn't be tied down. Cuffs are okay, but not chained to the chair. 
I don't know who promised you that, but he's going to stay chained. I advise you not to get within five feet of him. Warden, I appreciate your concern, but please, I had to call in a lot of favors to get this interview. I must have him relaxed. He has to be unchained, and no guards. Are you crazy? Please, Warden, I know the risks. Again, favors. He handed the warden a small slip of paper. The warden read it carefully. His expression changed from pity to annoyance. I'm not taking responsibility for you if you go in alone. I understand. Please, warden. The warden sighed, pulled out a cigarette, opened the door nervously, then nodded his head as a signal to open. The guards checked the small view screen to ensure that Benedict was secured. One drew his weapon, and the other nervously approached the door. The guards made eye contact, nodded curtly, then rushed into the room. Benedict watched them curiously. He was in his late forties, still fit, despite years of solitary, and had a piercing, unblinking gaze. He offered no movement or resistance. He scanned the intruders, then fixated on the light cigarette. The warden knew he'd salivate over it. Hello, Benedict, the warden said, standing close to the door. This is the guy who wanted to talk. You okay with that? He puffed his smoke in a small display of superiority. Benedict looked him in the eyes and wet his lips. It would be my pleasure, he said in a measured, slow, soft voice. The warden nodded. And give my best to Susan, Cassidy, and Cody. The warden reflexively tried to stay calm, but his forehead instantly began to sweat as the murderer spoke of the names of his wife and children. The professor here just wants to interview. You play nice, you get an extra hour in the yard every day next week. The first guard kept his weapon pointed firmly at Benedict's face. The guard was tremulous and looking for a reason to shoot. The second guard nervously unlocked Benedict's chains. The prisoner's eyes raised as each lock clicked open. He met the warden's gaze with an amused, questioning look. In an instant, they both knew the little man was in grave danger. The warden grabbed the little man again and whispered into his ear, This is nuts. If he charges, we'll come in firing. We'll be shooting to kill. If you get in the way, well, it won't be good. I know people who think killers are sympathetic. I know people who think they are the ones who can find the good in them, or some shit. There's no good in him. Only darkness. I know others who are just fanboys. Sickens me. Don't think you're special to him or to me. I don't care who wrote your little note. Also, don't forget that he's a killer who mutilated thirteen children. One was four years old. Don't forget that. The little man nodded. The guards retreated, weapons still trained on Benedict's head, and the door shut with a vacuum seal thud. 
The little man sat on the chair across the table from the cuffed killer. Benedict's eyes focused on his every mannerism. The little man put his briefcase on the table, folded his hands, looked at the killer and smiled nervously. What can I do for you, Professor? His voice was low and soft enough that the little man felt compelled to lean in to hear. Well, thank you for agreeing to this. I've read all of your writings and media pages. You want my autograph? Benedict held up his cuffed hands. The little man paused, seemed to realize that he sounded foolish, and continued. No, thanks, no. But again, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Benedict raised his eyebrows. Are you a comedian? The little man giggled nervously. He fumbled with the log on his briefcase. He opened the top and pulled out copies of Benedict's writing and multiple photographs. Benedict instantly took an inventory. Two pens, one plastic, one with some metal, and two paper clips. Do you mind if I record this? The little man said, placing his phone on the table. Benedict nodded in affirmation, keeping his eyes fixed on the pen with metal. The little man pulled out a letter opener and cut open a manila envelope. Benedict masked his surprise at the sight of the small knife. So, uh, where would you like to begin? Benedict studied the little man. He wasn't making eye contact. His movements were jerky, no rhythm clear sign of fear. He wasn't sure how to start the interview. Another sign of it. He'd probably never been out of his office. This was almost too easy. Benedict considered him prey. He licked his lips. Would you like to hear about my mother? The professor laughed nervously. <laughs> well, I think uh, what I really want to know is why you did it. I mean... A lot of victims were, well, children. Children. Benedict took a deep inhale. I wanted to destroy the illusion of innocence. The professor gulped. Are those pictures? Yes, the professor said, pulling out the photographs of the crime scene. Benedict had called the police himself, perhaps bored of the chase. When they arrived, dead bodies were hanging on the wall of his small ranch house, like obscene Christmas decorations. Benedict confessed instantly to the crimes. Unlike other mass murderers who commit suicide, Benedict relished in telling the parents of the victims every detail on their children's sexual assault, torture, and pleas for mercy. Benedict seemed to enjoy describing exactly how each sounded when they cried. He became excited at the prospect of seeing the pictures of the scene. I can't see. Move them closer. Oh, okay, sure. The professor slid a batch toward the killer, still clipped in the upper corner. The little man said nothing as Benedict slowly paged through the pictures. He stared lovingly at one particularly brutal photograph of a child lying in a pool of blood and vomit. 
body will often expel feces and semen at the moment of death, Benedict stated placidly. It's beautiful. Don't you think it's beautiful? Angel lust. The death of the innocent. No, I, I can't really look at those pictures. Gives me nightmares. Benedict smiled. This was too good to end quickly. I'm afraid I never caught your name. John, John Smith. Is that right? The little man shyly giggled again. You ever think about them? Yes, Benedict said, looking up from the photos and squarely in the little man's eyes. John Smith squirmed in his chair and broke the gaze, looking down in his lap. Benedict, imperceptibly, slid the larger paperclip off the table into his lap. John looked back up. I think about them every night. I carry a piece of them with me. That used to be literal. Benedict smiled at his macabre joke. They comfort me at night small voices begging me to stop. It's like a lullaby. Do you ever feel guilty? Why? Well, they're children. For now. But then they'll grow up to be policemen or bankers or models. They'll perpetuate the lie of this world. I helped them escape before they became as evil as the rest of us. You think we're all evil? Benedict laughed. All oh, evil. All predators. It's just that I'm the only one honest about it. Millions of more children will die of diarrhea this year than anything I did. Millions. Do you care about that? Sure. Really? Have you saved any of them? Well... Benedict leaned back in his chair and looked to the ceiling. Under the table, he quickly bent the paper clip into a small pick and began to work the lock of his cuffs. You go about your life, secure in the knowledge that you're a good person. But a short plane trip away, children are starving, being raped, being killed, and you don't care. But if they're little cute white kids, you pay attention. The little man scrunched his eyebrows. I'm not sure that's fair. You don't know anything about me. Oh, I know much more about you than you think. Would you like me to tell you? I'm sure. Benedict leaned across the table and spoke softly. Your parents were professionals, academics, probably. They were fixated on their work. You always felt like you needed to live up to their expectations. You made good grades, but excellence eluded you. You were accepted into a state college and got a master's degree. You tried to get into medical school, but failed. So you got a doctorate in some psychobabble that was given out more of charity than achievement. John seemed to shrink in his chair, his face belying shame and vulnerability. Benedict smiled and savored his dominance. You're married, but you know she never loved you. You also know she's cheating on you. You're hoping this interview leads to a big splash in the papers, and finally, some work that you can be proud of. 
Benedict's voice continued to lower. John leaned in to hear. Am I close? John looked stunned. That's incredible. His voice was soft and weak. I know everything about you, but I won't help you with your interview. John looked hurt. Why not? Because I don't trust you. You won't even tell me your real name. If you want me to trust you, you'll need to show me. John looked up hopefully, seemingly eager to please his master. How? Benedict looked up at the camera. John turned around for an instant. Cover it. John thought for a moment. He sighed, took off his coat, and reached toward the camera. He dutifully hung his coat over the lens. While his back was turned, Benedict freed his hands, quickly snatched the letter opener, and hid it in his lap. Better? Better. Benedict smiled. I can tell there's a question you really want to ask me. John looked shaken. Yes, he said softly. He sat down, paused, and gathered his thoughts. Yes, there is. Benedict leaned forward, inching his face across the table. John did the same. Have you seen it? John asked quiet. His eyes pleaded. Benedict paused. Yes. His voice was barely a whisper. John leaned closer. The darkness, John whispered. Benedict smiled. Yes. And John leaned closer. Tell me about it. The darkness lies in all of us. It's in your heart right now, just waiting to bubble to the surface. John leaned closer. The world is a vampire. Feeds on the poor. You grow fat eating the bodies of children. I just let it show through my action. I'm really just you. I show the world its hypocrisy because I have the strength to do so. You just sit by and let the rich grind their bones to dust. I give the world a gift. What gift? John whispered. Benedict paused and leaned closer. John did the same. Pain. John's eyes widened. Benedict began to see each step. His hands were free. The letter opener was poised. It would strike quickly, right in the face. Maybe he would catch his eye. He loved slicing an eye. John would recoil, he would spring on him and plunge the knife, not quickly, into his neck. He would puncture just medial to the sternocleidomastoid muscle, plunge about two inches, feel the resistance of the tough arterial wall, then feel the quick give as the adventitia was cut. The blood would be under significant pressure. It would shoot, hopefully into his face, and into the opposite wall. 
you would drink some. He was aroused at thoughts of orgy. John inched closer. Benedict, did he tell you his name? Benedict paused. It was such an oddly specific question. Yes. John's voice lowered still. What is it? Beelzebub. John's face fell in disappointment. His shoulders shrugged and he shook his head. Benedict wasn't sure how to process this look, but it was time to spring. His pupils dilated, his heart raced, and his lips smiled. At the speed of thought, he relished the orgasm of the simple, brutal act of dominating another man. He would tear into his fragile throat, and for a sweet instant, the small professor would look to his better in pleading surrender. He felt the edge of the professor's throat, felt a foreign snap vice grip his wrist. Down became up. He saw the ceiling. Then he felt his back and head smash into the unforgiving cement floor. All breath left his body and his vision tunneled to a small corridor. For an instant, he thought he was dead. Natural instinct put every ounce of energy in finding the next breath. Benedict coughed and sat up, confused. John stood at the corner of the table, sighing deeply with his back toward the fallen killer. Benedict felt the letter opener still in his hand. He sprung from the floor with a warrior's yell and reached for his prey's nape. He again felt the feet leave the ground. He flew brutally into the wall. The acoustic pad softened the blow, but the blunt crush again expelled all his breath. He felt a penetrating punch under his right bib and heard a sickening crack. Benedict spun around in angry fury. He reached savagely toward John, but again he lost control of his body. His face violently smashed into the table, bloodying his nose. Involuntary tears filled his eyes. Fire flooded through his right hand as he heard the slice stick of the letter opener pierce his hand into the table below. Benedict recoiled, blinded and in searing pain, and realized he was fastened to the table. His mind pleaded to grasp the situation, but he found no answers. He moaned, choked, and searched for his breath. His eyes focused on the knife sticking through his hand. The little man stood next to him. He reached forward, grabbed the knife, and yanked it with enough force to lift the table for a small instant. Benedict's hand was free, and he slumped back into the chair. He gasped for breath and stifled a cry. John sighed, calmly righted his chair from the floor, sat down, and stared at the table. Benedict instinctively squeezed his hand, trying to stem the bleeding and the pain. John rubbed his head and searched for words. He eventually looked up, met Benedict's eyes, and sighed in disappointment. Beelzebub. Beelzebub. Really? That's the best you could come up with. Why not Osmodeus, or maybe even Beetlejuice, or Darth Vader? And did hear you right. Did you really quote a line from the Smashing Pumpkins? 
Are you serious? John shook his head and clucked his tongue. I'll be honest, I'm disappointed. Call the warden. Benedict hissed. He looked at John with abject, burning hatred. I'll give you credit for getting the cuffs off so fast. That was pretty good. But the letter opener? Really? You went for that instead of the pen? I really expected more. Benedict was humiliated and hurt. He searched for a way to attack his foe. John seemed to notice. <laughs> well, here, you want to try again? Toss the letter opener toward the prisoner in a clear act of dominance. Benedict shrugged. I'm not going to talk to you. Let me out. And all that... that bullshit about pain and rich people. My goodness. I expect better exposition from freshman seminar papers. He shook his head. You're really just nothing. I mean, just nothing. He gathered the pictures and papers and stacked them neatly in the briefcase. He thought for a moment and then looked Benedict in the eyes. Benedict met his gaze and for a brief moment, John's eyes turned completely black. Benedict was angry and hurt, but in that moment he became scared. I thought your actions were so horrific that you had actually seen the darkness, the real darkness. Not the watered-down version we experience every night. The real darkness. He has a name, but you didn't. At least not in a conscious way. But those kids... I mean, that was so horrific that maybe you saw it in the past or in a... Maybe you were just too stupid to notice. Anyway, I must apologize, but I have to check. Let me out. Benedict fancied himself the smartest man in any room. He'd been called evil, a monster, a villain, but never stupid. We've evolved away from darkness, haven't we? We hide from it. We fear it. We huddle together and pray for the dawn. Really, we become weak. If light leaves, well, we're helpless. You're right. John Smith is not my real name. You were wrong about everything else. My parents are terrific. I love them dearly. I have a sister. I never did marry. I was good at numbers and did pretty well as an accountant. Made partner early. I had a good, if humdrum, life. But one night I saw the darkness. I saw it just as clearly as I see you now. I thought I was dreaming, but I wasn't. It spoke to me. It was real. It was real. He began to turn the briefcase, revealing a hidden snap in the side. He slid it open. He looked squeamish, and he backed away. Two thick, hairy legs poked out. John pulled out a pen, fished in the pocket quickly, and pried out a previously large spider that had waited smashed in a tiny space. John backed up and shuddered. The spider sat fat and motionless on the table. Do spiders bother you? Benedict tried to conceal any hint of emotion. No. Well, they scare the crap out of me. <laughs> the spider sprang off the table and scurried to the corner of the room. It squeezed into a small space and looked into the room with hideous, unblinking black eyes. 
That thing is a Goliath tarantula. It creeps the bejesus out of me. You can't imagine how terrible it is to carry that thing around. It didn't show up on the x-ray when they searched my bag. These things normally eat birds, whole birds. John mimed a bird size in his hand. This one can smell and taste blood. Benedict rubbed his injured hand. Watch. John grabbed the letter opened and tossed it into the corner. The spider reached out with its front legs, drew the metal into its body, and Benedict imagined it licking the blood from the table. I think that's the worst thing about darkness. Uncertainty. Just as we've evolved to pray to the light, that thing evolved to live in the darkness. When we lose our senses, we become naked and helpless. Even the worst of us feels the gnawing fear of uncertainty. John took a deep breath. I saw the darkness, the real darkness, and he told me his name. I heard it reverberate down to my very soul. You can't forget that. I saw him dance. Things started to happen to me. I can't explain any of it. But something distracted him, and I ran. I ran for all I was worth. I ran for my life. I'll never forget that face, that voice, that name. I also know he's coming back. I know I'll see signs. I'll see heralds. Others who have seen the darkness. I imagine as his time gets closer, I'll see more of them. I thought maybe I'd see it in you. I thought your actions were so inhuman that maybe the darkness corrupted you. Maybe you were the herald of the end. But you didn't see him. You just did all that cruelty for masturbation. Really, you're just a pervert who finds pornography and violence. You're meaningless. John began to pace around the room. The thing is, I'm not even sure I'll know what to do when I find a herald. If you're naked in a room with a spider, do you want to find it? Or do you not want to find it? You know? I can't stop him from coming. What should I do? Call the police? Who will believe me? I don't even know what I'll do. I just want to know. He approached the chagrin killer. I just want the uncertainty to end. I want the dread to end. John stood, walked over to Benedict. Look at Go to hell. John smiled. He roughly grabbed Benedict's face and lifted it to his. He leaned in as if to kiss him. There's a moment of naked, unadulterated fear, where I can see into a man's soul. It's a gift from him. He calls to me. If he's in you, I will see it. If you're a herald, I will see it. I need to know. I need to see into your soul in your moment of greatest fear. Maybe, just maybe, you're not just a meaningless pervert. Maybe sometime in the past, you were exposed to something beautiful. Terrifying, but beautiful. Benedict spat in his face. John backed up. All of us are afraid of the dark. He hit the signal to turn off the lights. Benedict was smothered with heavy, complete darkness. 
I'm not afraid of the dark, he said weakly. There was no answer. Benedict sat still for what seemed, to him, like an eternity. He waited, waited for any sign that something would happen. I want out. Warden! Benedict screamed. Warden, let me out! He screamed a few minutes. The thought about trying to rush the door. But to what end? The spider was in that corner. The door was locked. He thought about feeling around for John. Maybe he could grab him and force him to open the door. Would John see in the dark? Was John still in the room? He alternately wanted him there and wanted him gone. He felt a sick dread that he was alone and exposed with a blood-eating Goliath spider. He felt around the air near his body, but then he reflexively pulled his hands in for fear of what they may feel. A shudder seized his spine. He considered screaming again, but now felt that any sound drew unwanted attention. He sat perfectly still, listening for any movement or breath. All he heard was his own heartbeat. He wondered if he could hear his hand bleed. This won't work. I'm not afraid. He pleaded, but his voice was meek. He stood, but felt dizzy and nauseous. His visual cues of balance were gone. He stumbled backwards toward the wall, hoping for some sensory feedback to orient his mind in this new, horrifying world. This won't work, he sobbed. He tried to hold perfectly still, hoping he would hear some movement of breath. He heard nothing. Minutes passed, or was it hours? Benedict became afraid to speak or cry out. He wanted to cry. Please, please, let me out, please. I'll let you tell anything. I'm sorry about the children. He felt a quick brush against his leg. Please. The door opened, and the little man emerged with a briefcase in hand. You were in there a long time, the warden said. Holy. I don't know what happened. Heart attack. I dropped a signaler and tried to do CPR for the last hour, but, well, it just died. I'm sorry, Warden. I even think I accidentally cut his hand in the process. The guards rushed over to the body. One kept his gun fully trained on the killer's head. The other nervously checked for a pulse. He shook his head. But again, I'm really sorry, really. The warden looked puzzled at the placid look on the little man's bookish face. Did you at least get what you wanted? Tragically, no. Nothing useful. I really thought it would, this one. They both glanced at the dead body on the floor. Warden, I heard you have an interesting prisoner in cell 12, Block D. Life term? Killed a family of six? Yeah, he's a purse of work, all right. Do you think I could ask him a few questions? In the same room. The warden backed away from the unnaturally calm little man. Sure. We'll set it up for next week. Eight. 
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish, or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today, or visit Angie dot com. That's A N G I dot com. I hope you enjoyed the killer's interview by D. Fulkerson, as performed by yours truly. Up next, we've got a second story for you. This one from author Ryan Brenneman. In it, our protagonist dives further than anticipated and discovers there is far more. Lurking in the frigid depths than he could imagine, or would want to. Without further ado, I present to you, Deep. Blight Gardner awoke to an oppressive physical darkness. It embraced him. As the cold shadows flowed around him, he felt himself falling, slowly but surely. Tried to reach out, to flail, and to grasp, but only pain greeted him. Something bit into his wrists like fiery needles. His hands found each other fast, and they clasped together with interlocked fingers. They'd been bound behind his back. When he tried his feet, not only did he find the same intrusion of pain, but there was also a weight there. A tension that dangled below his legs that dragged him along, as were his hands. So had his legs been bound, and something was pulling him deeper, farther into the dark. After a few seconds, a pressure came upon him. He felt it around his eyes and deep in his sinuses. The shadows had become overwhelming and heavy, aggressive. The further along he went, the greater the weight of the blackness. Every time he moved, he heard the darkness move too. It was a physical presence. He felt himself push through it. It felt familiar, very familiar. He felt something in his mouth, plastic, malleable. He breathed through it, and it stagnant air filled his lungs. When he released it, he felt the air move out the sides of his mouth. It was then he had the sudden sinking realization. His predicament finally made horrible sense. The air was released from the sides of his mouth, and it formed bubbles that fizzed in the darkness around him. He heard them, and felt them against his face as they floated away. Some of the pressure left his face. The air that escaped paved the way to his terrible understanding. Some of the darkness seeped in through the corners of his mouth. Its salty, gritty texture filled his dried mouth. The taste reaffirmed his worst nightmare. No, he thought. No, 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 no. 
This cannot be. No. He tried to scream just moments before he reached his silk-covered destination. No one would hear him, for he was alone. Alone, bound, and trapped on the ocean floor. The panic that beset him was unlike any he'd ever known before. And again he started fighting his restraints. A useless gesture. He tossed and turned like a fish at the end of a long line. He stood no chance of escaping. The ropes that bound him were far too tight and thick for that. After several minutes, Blake felt a terrible exhaustion set in. The water chilled him. The only warmth came from the failing adrenaline surging within his shivering veins. The salt stung at his chest with needles and pins. A shocking and unwelcome pain. He stared into the dark. He was mortified by the almost perfect darkness before him. In the night and at his depth, he was positive his visibility was no more than a few inches in front of his face, yet he knew he could see. His eyes, and nose for that matter, were both dry. They were covered. Someone had given him a mask to see through, but why? He could see nothing. Nothing, and beyond that nothing, the shadows swirled thick and devious, concealing everything from the smallest plankton to the largest predator. His breathing accelerated as his mind kindly illuminated the shadows beyond. He saw sharks, hundreds of them circling, their eyes as black as the water, their teeth shining in a bloody white radiance. They all smiled at him. They'd been given such a lovely present. That was what it was, wasn't it? A gift to anything and everything that lurked below. The only thing he was missing was a pretty little bow. And he'd be alive to feel it. Whoever had damned him here made sure of that. What cruel bastard sends a man to the deep while he's asleep? What had happened? His memory was a jigsaw shoved onto the floor, scattered and unorganized. His mind tried to repair it, but the pieces wouldn't fit. In his current state, the reconstruction of said puzzle looked incredibly unlikely. And there was something about a party, a bar. The current ran across the small of his naked back like a giant centipede. Imaginary or not, Blake turned, twisting his bonds, but the image before him remained the same. If anything had been there, he'd never have known. As he rolled to his left and then back to his right, nothing changed. The static image of nothingness held his focus tight like a vice. It continued to do so until he looked up. The appearance of some light, any light at all, should have helped alleviate his fears, but instead it felt as though his heart had shriveled up and died within his chest. The moon watched him from overhead, too far away to offer any help. Its light was dulled and blurred by the surface, a surface which must have sat at least seventy feet away. A swimmable distance, a good distance for any diver who wasn't bound to the bottom of the sea. It could be worse, his mind decided to say. Yet the temptation of the waves above and the soothing light of the moon offered him no hope. They merely mocked him with the release he couldn't have. Before his eyes, the moon, 
was swallowed by the dark. Blake grasped fast for the rope below. Holding it tight, he pulled and thrashed until his back was brought to bear against the hard concrete block that had sunk him. His heart raced, his eyes strained in suffocating black. Something, somewhere above, had just crossed between him and the only light he had left. Something big, and he could not see it. He could only wait for it to take. Seconds passed, turned. Minutes passed, and he was still alive. Grip relaxed. Cautious, he was very cautious. He felt himself rise, held buoyant by the breath in his lungs. In the depths, it wasn't just his eyes that failed him. All his senses had seemingly abandoned him to his fate. His hearing was useless. The ones who had damned him to the deep had placed earplugs in his ears, and though they'd surely saved his eardrums from rupturing under the water, the only sounds that came through them were harsh and static. All the ocean offered him was a droning white noise. Down there, in the deep, the only sense he had unhampered was his touch, but that could only help him so much. He was a prisoner in an unaccessible hell. It took about five minutes, an unspeakable amount of time for Blake, before light would reappear in the waters above. In that time, Blake, fueled by his fear of the suffocating unknown, had been feeling around his restraints, reaffirmed what he already knew. Rope had bound him at the wrists and at the ankles. He followed the line beneath his ankles and felt about the cinder block that had pulled him down. The rope wrapped around it many times. Each strand was as thick as his thumb, and he couldn't find any knot. It was surely on the other side of the block, suffocated in the thick muck below. He couldn't untie it. The idea of his pocket knife came to mind. He should have had it on him. He never went anywhere without it. It was a good, hopeful idea for a few seconds. When he reached upwards for his shorts, he was only met with the touch of his own skin. His chin, as if he could see himself. His chin rubbed against his raw collarbone, and Blake found he was also without a shirt. He was naked, completely exposed and naked. They'd stripped him of not only his freedom and of his understanding, but of his goddamn clothes as well. His knife surely sat comfortably in his clothes, far away from him, above the surface. He cursed in an explosion of air and fury that had taken over from the bone-numbing fear he'd felt moments before. It was a feeling that any man who has had hope torn from his chest so quickly after finding it knows all too well. In the darkness, however, it was a fleeting feeling. The cold that crept along his skin made itself known once more. It begged for Blake's attention. Where was he before? His mind wandered back to the jigsaw puzzle, and had found some of the pieces unturned. A bar. Downtown L.A. That was it. His last memories of freedom. And they were spent in... Just a typical Friday night. Not exactly respectable, but... Not worth his situation, surely. What could he have done to elicit this fate? 
an alley. He flipped a jigsaw piece in his head. There'd been a woman there. She'd called beautiful woman, blonde, green eyes. What happened then? Another piece flipped. She wasn't alone, was she? Another piece. She'd offered him a drink earlier. Something was in it. The puzzle turning stopped. For the first time in what felt like a lifetime, something above caught his eye. As if granted by a cruel god, a green light descended from the surface. It caught his eye early, and he followed it as it sunk beside him. It fell gracefully, almost perfectly, through the water. In a slow drop, it settled nicely in the silt below. Blake saw pieces of the sediment rise around the light in a thin cloud as the dim LED glow stick-touched the ocean floor. His only cup had landed just beyond his grasp. He tried, of course, but he found the weight that tethered him to the bottom was too great to move. So the light remained nearby, but unusable. He tried to hover close to its glow. It showed him the smooth silt of the bottom for the first time. The vaguest silhouette of it had appeared around his sight, when he looked down, he could see the outline of his chest. More importantly, he could see that in the yard or so between him and the light, he was perfectly alone. He smiled until he realized the light in front of him had somehow increased the eeriness of the wall of black behind him. He could feel it sticking to his skin like a giant spider's web. Its caress was unwelcome. He thrashed around, struggling to pull the block closer to the light, but he accomplished nothing. More motion attracted his gaze from above. There were more glow sticks. Three more descended from the surface. He saw two of them enter the water from above, near where the moon had been. They illuminated the faintest shape of the object that sat above his head. A boat. Help? Were the lights there to pave the way for a dive team? The idea was sweet as it rolled in his head, but it seemed so unlikely. The stinging on his chest brought the pessimist. It was his captors above. They were dropping the lights to be cruel, nothing more. As they settled, he noticed that the pattern hadn't been random. The lights all landed around him in a perfectly semicircle formation. He noticed each one had a fishing line wrapped around their middle. They hadn't sunk. They'd been lowered. But why? The prickling feeling on his chest got worse. The light around him had grown helpful. Blake could see himself for the most part in their sickly green glow. It was both reassuring and disheartening to see the seafloor around him. He was thankful to see the silt free of crabs or other aquatic nightmares. The idea of something crawling up the ropes and onto him made him shiver. However, to see that only algae spotted the bottom was crushing. There was nothing. Seashell, no shark tooth, nothing that Blake could have possibly used to cut himself free. His head drooped in frustration. There was something on his chest... No, not on. Something was in his chest, cut into. Someone had cut all over his chest, 
and the cuts were purposeful in their direction and design. They'd cut shapes, symbols into his chest. Blake spent his whole life in L.A., a city boy through and through, but he knew a brand when he saw one. He had been branded. To Blake, it felt more than a physical injury. It was a violation upon him, a desecration. His gut churned, and his fingernails bit into the palms of his hands with a furious persistence. Another glow stick fell from the surface. The glow stick, the final light, fell opposite of the semicircular formation behind him. Its light was unguided. As it sank, it whirled at the water's mercy. It fell until it was just above him. It fell until it was almost an arm's reach away from his face. It fell toward his feet. Then, Blake watched as it sank past the ocean floor. It was with horror that Blake followed the light's descent. He merely had to lean forward to watch as the light carved its way farther and farther into darkness. He watched, eyes wide, as the light slipped so far into darkness it had become a memory, faded and dull. As it sank, it had revealed to Blake everything. It had shown him the solid wall of sand and rock it passed as it sunk, the same wall Blake sat atop of. It showed him a depth without end. The light had shown Blake that he was only a mere foot away from the oceanic drop-off. The trench before him was hidden once more in shadow, so perfectly that Blake started to wonder if he'd hallucinated it. His heart knew he hadn't. He'd been dropped, perfectly, at the edge of certain death, and the light was his captors intentionally showing it. From the surface, they played a cruel game with Blake, a tear caught at the bottom of his face mask. He wasn't sure if missing the trench had been a blessing or a curse. If he'd gone over, if it was half as deep as he'd thought, then the pressure would surely kill him. If not, then the sudden descent would have played havoc with his blood. Blake wasn't a seafaring man, but he wasn't a moron. He knew what the pressures of the deep ocean could do, and the creatures that lived down there were far more frightening than any shark. The thought of it, of one of those creatures rising, made him recoil further. His back came to rest against the slime of the ocean floor. He lay in the comfortable circle of light. Up here, at the edge of oblivion, he was condemned to wait. Death could come at any time, Blake was sure of that. That was the worst of it, the waiting. Blake considered, if only for a moment, pushing himself over the edge. He would die, painfully, but it would be faster, it would also be on his own terms. The idea of control gave him some satisfaction, but how would he move the weight? Last he tried, it had been impossible, and who was to say the depth was far enough to kill him? What if he landed at the perfect place between agony and death? It was too risky. He could have chosen to stop breathing. No, he could have made it even easier than that. He could have just spit out his regulator. That would have been more peaceful, less painful. Either way, Blake decided it was far preferable to die as he wanted 
than to die as the bastards above wanted him to. He just needed to gather the courage. Courage ran in short supply as the lost light began to emerge from the dark. Blake had risen to a floating position again when, in his peripherals, he saw the faint glimmer beyond the edge of the trench. He avoided it. Surely it wasn't real. It was his mind, his panic. If he ignored it, he'd suffer no consequence. Yet the light persisted, and soon the glow became unmistakable. The shimmer called to Blake from just past the edge, in the deep. Blake looked. The light was rising. Against all logic and sanity, the last light had begun to ascend in the frigid waters. It showed Blake something awful. Below its light, the shadowed waters seemed to breathe and stir. In the periphery of the rising green light, shades changed to something rose from the depths. It was a sickening realization that came when he saw the shadows had wrapped themselves around the middle of the glow stick. The light was rising because something was carrying it. Blake's view was again obscured by bubbles and darkness as he retreated from the abysmal edge. In quick, pathetic motions, he tried to pull himself away from the rising terror. He felt the prickly sand press up against his back as he wrestled futilely with his restraints. Unfortunately, he had neither the strength nor the energy to break the vacuous hold the sediment had upon the block. He could do little more than yell through his regulator as the light peaked. Blake could see it now. As the light stopped its vertical ascent, a disturbing scene greeted him. He would have given anything to return to the darkness as a figure clambered up and over the ledge. It stood directly before him on two naked legs, their eyes met. The sight before him was unimaginable. The light had been carried up by a man. No, not a man. A corpse. The light showed enough to confirm that. The man's bare skin had grown ragged and gray, waterlogged by untold months beneath the waves. Some sections of flesh had long since given away, surrendered to the sea, revealing the fetid muscles beneath. Blake gagged when he noticed the tiny tendrils of tattered skin dangled off into the distance, sights upon the man's body where the denizens of the ocean had begun to pick him apart and eat, piece by piece. Rigor mortis had a tight grip upon the man's pain-tortured face, his eyes were as wide, like his mouth, frozen in an eternal, silent scream. He'd been dead for a long time, yet his eyes still moved. They fixed themselves upon Blake. The monstrous vision held the light close to its face, and Blake couldn't help himself. He stared deeply into those clouded, grayed eyes. Blake could see, though, behind its gaze. The soul sat within it. The corpse leaned closer, brought by an unseen current, perhaps, towards Blake. Extending its free arm in a rigid, almost robotic fashion, it began to examine him. It 
seemed inquisitive, like a man examining vegetables at a supermarket. It was morbid in the way it moved. When in motion, the limbs and muscles of the figure seemed healthy, alive. Yet every time the motion stopped, the body resumed a state of incredible rigidity, caught in a constant state of flux. The man who appeared both living and dead. Blake, petrified before this horror, saw as the corpse's eyes left his and fell upon his chest. Lowering its light, its other hand came forward, and its waterlogged finger began to trace the patterns carved into Blake's chest as if it were following the streets on a map. Revolted at the creature's touch, Blake squirmed and twitched, but the corpse held no contempt. It followed his every motion with intense precision. Seemingly satisfied, it lifted itself back. No, it was pulled back. There was something behind the corpse. Like a pillar in the light, a shape had taken form behind the moving carcass. It rose out of sight, above and below, with every swaying motion. Corpse made in the water, the pillar followed like an enormous shadow. The corpse danced at the pillar's will, a puppet to the puppeteer. Before he could grant it any further thought, attention was called back to the corpse, as it had brought the glow stick toward its own chest. It became deadly still in the water. It was waiting for Blake to see. It had to show it. The corpse showed Blake his chest and the familiar brand upon it. Blake was staring at the very same symbols that had been cut into his own chest. It wasn't an execution or some random, cruel murder. He hadn't pissed off the wrong man. No, it was far worse and far more primal than that. It was a sacrifice, and Blake was the lamb. As Blake's eyes stretched wide, the corpse dropped the glow stick and it rose toward the surface. The pillar carried the figure into the shadows above. At that moment, Blake made the decision that whatever was to happen next was the worst-case scenario. Everything else was preferable. He wouldn't be the lamb. He tried to spit out his regulator. Disgusting salty water managed to creep into his mouth as he struggled, but even though his teeth and lips had parted from it, the regulator wouldn't fall from his mouth. Using his tongue, he tried to push it out, but it held fast to his face. He felt the pull of the regulator around his lips and on the back of his head. The bastards hadn't given him a choice. They taped the regulator to his face. He had to be alive for what came next. Through the murk, another corpse appeared. The pillar had brought up another degraded carcass from fathoms below. Blake foundered against the seafloor as the woman inched closer. She was younger than the man who had come before, and her body showed fewer signs of decay. Behind her eyes, however, sat the same cold intelligence. That sentience watched him as she rose away into the dark. Her visage fleeting, Blake saw that across her bare chest was etched the same symbols. Symbols of the damned. Another corpse came. This one was horribly disfigured and mangled. There was more rot than man left on his bones, 
Yet the eyes remained lively, his jaw dangled by only strands of sinew, and his right arm had long since been torn asunder at the elbow. The white of the bone seemed to glimmer in the dull light. Despite the rot, the edges of the symbols were still visible on his white chest, and his left hand managed to hold on threateningly to an old rusted dagger. Like the others, the rotted man faded into the above. More bodies appeared as the endless pillar rose. They came one after another. Each one bore a look of indescribable anguish and pain on their face, a look that they forever carried, enslaved by the alien pillar behind them. Around Blake, a storm of currents had begun to churn the sediment into a frenzy. What little light he had soon started to dirty, as a swirling cloud threatened to drown it all out. The currents came from beyond the light. Things moved unseen out there in the dark. They started to touch him. Like light, arms and hands long gone cold reached for him. Whenever his back was turned, they'd project themselves from the darkness like a sunken jack-in-the-box. He'd feel their slime-covered fingers caress him. Their nails would jab and scratch him, and each and every time Blake turned around he would see just enough. An arm sucked back into the void, beyond his gaze, the cat toying with the mouse, a mouse with its back crushed in a trap. That was when she entered into the light, a horrid witch of a woman. Her skin had withered, and she seemed more bone now than flesh. The symbol on her chest had fallen away, and only the scars on her ribcage remained. Her sunken eyes glared harshly, as she reached for his face. Blake screamed for help that would never come, as the woman ensnared him in her decomposing fingers. She brought him in close, hugging him tightly, as if they'd been friends, with muscles Blake didn't even think she'd had. He could feel a touch on his neck as she exhaled water from her lungs. Up close, Blake saw every horrible detail. The pillar was clear now, and it was obvious that it was alive. It was the dull, rotted color of the corpses, and it had the obvious texture of meat. From the woman flowed the strings of the puppeteer, veins and tentacles that long ago forcibly invaded her body, fed directly into the enormous mass behind her. In the dimming light, Blake swore he saw them pulsate. They were pumping like the veins beneath his skin, he felt another liquid breath on his neck. Craning around, he saw what he'd believed to be a pillar wrapped around behind him. The first man he'd seen had emerged, and the pillar carried him away. The mass of flesh that had fused to his back lifted his body upward toward the surface. His eyes never left Blake. In the shadows, the pillar seemed to squirm and twist as it snaked its way up, thickening the further it went. As it positioned itself, Blake understood what it was that had risen from the trench. The pillar was actually an enormous tentacle, like the suckers of an octopus. The tentacle had used the woman's arms to hold Blake tight. Behind him, the tentacle had brought into position the ghastly, one-armed man Blake had seen earlier. The woman tightened her grip as she presented Blake to the one-armed man. Craning his neck, Blake saw the man fumble with the rusted dagger, 
He brought it sharply toward the bonds that held Blake's ankles so tight, and he began to cut. He was reckless and precise as he sawed through the ropes. As the binds came loose, Blake grimaced as the knife continued to saw. The man had accidentally severed a slice of skin from the side of Blake's ankle. Blake felt his legs come apart from each other, and he let them spread into the water. He was free from the bottom, free. In that instant, the fight started. He let loose with the fury and panic that the entire ordeal had granted him, but the corpse held tight. In fact, the more he struggled, the tighter her grasp got. The strength was far too great to resist, and soon Blake started to feel his ribs bend and strain. He couldn't breathe, but he kept fighting. The whole time Blake fought, he saw her horrid gaze, unblinking, unfeeling, unyielding. Despite the thrashing, the puppet corpse behind him decided to proceed with the cutting. This time it took aim at the bonds between Blake's wrists. As he did so, Blake had an idea, a risky, terrible idea. In acceptance of the fact, his legs stopped kicking. The woman released her grip just enough and kind, and Blake sucked in a huge breath of air. His eyes glared defiantly at the specter. He kept breathing, waiting. He had nothing to lose as he made his move. As soon as the dead man had finished cutting his binds, and at the precise moment the final strand had parted, Blake's palms closed around the rusted blade, and they didn't let go. He wanted to scream as the blade dug into his palm, but he was beyond that now. His veins burned with pure determination. The one-armed man seemed not to possess the same strength as the woman had, for his grip on the knife was weak and feeble. No matter how hard the man pulled behind him, Blake would not release the blade. The woman's face never changed, but Blake saw a hatred grow in her eyes. With a terrible yank that nearly ripped the meat from his palm and bloodied the water all around him, Blake pulled the knife and the rest of the man's fingers free. Behind him, the top of the tentacle ran into the dark, carrying corpses along like a morbid roller coaster. But in front of him, the woman didn't retreat. She tightened her vice-like grip. Unfortunately for her, the grip was too high, and she'd found the tank on his back. This provided Blake with ample room to bring his right hand forward and to plunge the blade deep into the woman's stomach. It scraped through her spine, her grip failed just long enough, and Blake pushed himself free. Blake decided he wasn't going to die. The woman tried to recapture Blake, but with a strength he shouldn't have had, Blake brought the blade through the water and into the left eye of the old woman. She didn't scream, but she clenched both eyes tight in pain. A thick black goo seeped from the wound and stuck to Blake's hand like ink. Her arms flailed about, so Blake ripped the knife from her face and he jammed it into the other eye. With that, she recoiled. Her hands came to her face to cover her wounds, and the tentacle fell completely away beyond the light. He was free. He knew his time was short. With his sliced right hand, Blake managed to find the glow stick the beast had dropped by his legs. He brought it to his face just in time to see the tentacle had not left him yet. Another body, a large, overweight man, was soon upon him. His arms reached forth. Their target was Blake's throat. 
Blake jabbed at the body with the rusted blade, and it retreated fast. Blake enjoyed that. The threat of pain, injury, didn't sit well with the monster. That gave Blake a much-needed edge. Blake knew he couldn't hesitate any further. With a great kick against the block that had imprisoned him, he propelled himself toward the surface, to freedom, to air. He knew at that moment he would surface, even as the nitrogen started to boil in his blood, and as the salt seeped into his fresh wounds, Blake could only think of one thing, the surface breaking around his head, the chilly night sky biting into his scalp, the calming sight of the night sky. The watchful stars would be there, and they would see his final triumph. It would be beautiful. As his body began to betray him, he forced himself through, He knew the tentacle pursued from below. He could feel it, a presence in the water all around him. Hungry, ravenous eyes followed him from below. But he didn't care. He couldn't afford to. His hand was cramping. He found his grip morphing around the light and the knife. He could only hold on to one, so he made a choice. As the knife sunk, Blake grabbed onto the glow stick with both hands. They clung to it like it was a lifeline. The surface was coming. Oh, how close it should have been. Surely only thirty feet. Twenty. Ten. The stars. He should have seen the stars. Instead, only a pained, angry face met his gaze. Blake nearly collided with the corpse that had ambushed him out of the dark. He brought his feet to the corpse's chest and kicked hard against it. He felt the thing's ribs collapse beneath his feet. He circled to his right and tried to rise again. He would make it. He knew he could do it. He found another one. The woman was missing half of her face, but she reached for him regardless. He dove down as she grasped for his legs. He just barely slipped by. Out of nowhere, a hand reached for his face. His momentum carried him past the man and too close to the tentacle. He flipped around and shot far away. A small amount of water invaded his goggles, and the bends began to stab at his muscles. He could do it. Again he was ambushed. It shouldn't have been possible. The tentacle was everywhere. It was fast. How is it so fast? Then the light showed him the truth. He retreated into the light's periphery, for in its center a body was reaching for him a devious smile on its face. To his right, the light revealed another one with twisted fingers and an exposed jaw-like ribcage. The bodies floated side by side in the water, their arms extended at length. Blake had no choice. He rose, and yet even there more bodies sat waiting in ambush. The same happened as he swam backwards, too. The bodies all formed a thick wall of nightmares around him. They were too close. One of the bodies struck Blake hard in the ribs in passing, and in pain that was finally too overwhelming, he dropped the light. Greedy arms took their chance and assaulted him as the light fell. As it sank, it illuminated the inside of what had become a solid wall of flesh. A swirling maelstrom decorated with death had completely surrounded him. There wasn't just one tentacle. There were dozens and they had contained him inside a giant sphere. His arms and legs were free, but Blake had never felt more trapped. The tentacles swirled. 
They kept him from the stars. Through his earplugs, he heard a chorus of screams grow from nothing to overtake the white noise. They came from all around him, escaping out of the throats of the long-since-deceased. Their faces contorted as the ghoulish melody echoed through the waves. It was a tune of pure mockery and triumph, the song of Blake's defeat. He couldn't do it. He never could have. Blake began to sink. His muscles had stopped working. The pain of the bends was too great for his brain to ignore. He burned inside as the tentacles began to constrict their net. He was only vaguely aware as many more pairs of arms began to claw at him and hold him tightly in submission. The corpses never blinked. Behind his eyes, Blake was screaming. Not from the pain, he screamed in defiance. He screamed against the cruel irony that had perverted his escape. He saw the light at the bottom of the writhing mass of tentacles. Blake watched as the tentacles parted, allowing the light to fall beyond his reach, beyond his sight. The tentacles closed again, and the light died. Blake was in the pitch black, alone with the dead. He couldn't see it, but they started to smile. He felt it when the arms tore the goggles from his face, not that they mattered anymore. The darkness persisted. Only the pain was new. The water assaulted his eyes and forced its way up his nose. The salt burned everything that it touched. He only managed to suck in half a breath as they removed the regulator from his face. The breath was spoiled as water was quick to invade his lungs. Blake sputtered and spat, but all that did was expel the last bit of air from his lungs. As they tore the tank from his back, Blake was drowning. He wouldn't drown fast enough. Though he couldn't see it, the tentacles positioned him strategically. They moved him up against a large, slimy section of barren flesh. Blake's head felt as though it would explode, and that was before the spines entered his body. Once inside, numerous barbed tentacles searched and dug their way into his veins. He felt a warm burning as an alien substance seeped into his veins. Eventually, all of his blood would be lost to the sea and only the thick blood of the monster would remain. As his head grew dizzy, tiny tendrils dug their way into his spine. The pain was sharp, unbearable as they coiled about his central nervous system, like hungry pythons. Blake tried to scream, but there was no air left to give. No sound escaped his curled lips. He'd hoped for comfort in death, but as the nerves of the beast found hold inside him, he found true hell. His mind became one with the others. Left in darkness, death never found Blake. The weight of the water filled his chest, and the sounds of the dam filled his ears. He heard their screams, hundreds of screams. He felt their pain. Hundreds of lost souls sacrificed. They were all connected. He heard their pleas. Help me. Anyone, please. I'm drowning. I'm drowning. Why am I underwater? Who's there? Is anyone? I want my mom. He felt his body move, but nodded his command. He felt his eyes open, but he saw nothing. He felt his lips forced into a smile, but he was anything but happy. He was left with one choice. 
the last option he could physically achieve. He called for help. No one would answer him, of course, for his pain was their pain. His fate was theirs. As they sunk into the abyss, one alien voice was forced into his mind. All is one here in the colony. From their position near the seafloor, beyond the ring of light, the two divers had watched as Blake made for the surface. They knew both better than to interfere, so they had waited patiently. There was no reason to chase after him. The colony had never allowed anyone to escape before. The situation, unseen above, was surely well in hand. The blonde-haired diver watched as the lost light sank in front of her. She smiled as it settled. It was done. Moments after, a tentacle had crept into their circle. The blonde-haired woman watched as an elderly man was brought forth. Carried between his arms was an old wooden chest. The other diver took the chest gently and allowed it to sink to the ocean floor. With his partner's help, they opened the chest. The contents were much to their liking. They closed the chest and prepared to make their ascent. However, before they went, the tentacles surrounded them in a similar fashion to how they had surrounded Blake. The divers held themselves unnaturally calm as the dead surrounded them, including the recently deceased Blake Gardner. The tentacles seemed to bring him to showcase at the front of the circle. Using his muscles, they forced Blake's right hand outwards and they extended his fingers up. They made his body wave goodbye before they pulled him into the unknown. This didn't affect the divers at all. Two more bodies were brought to display. They noted the one-armed man who'd lost all but one of his fingers and the blinded woman. In a sickening motion, the one-armed man's body peeled away from the tentacles. The tendrils retracted from his corpse and the flesh peeled around from his back. His body was dropped to the floor below, discarded. The man squirmed but for a moment. They always did that. The woman had often been told it was just a reflex, like a decapitated chicken when it runs. She had other theories, though. She wondered if, for just a moment, the poor souls got control of their bodies back before they became forever still. She honestly didn't care either way. The woman was next. She was useless to the tentacles if she could not see, so she too was abandoned. She settled rather calmly into her sandy grave. As the tentacles left, one final body was brought to the light. On it, a young woman, no older than twenty, presented his right hand clenched into a fist. On it, he raised two fingers toward the divers, senior diver nodded and held up two of his own in an acknowledgment. With that, the young man smiled and the creature disappeared into the trench. The two divers packed up. Two more bodies. They had work to do. I hope you enjoyed Deep by Ryan Brenneman, as performed by yours truly. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me tonight for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard, 
Please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other podcasts featuring twice the horror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 a month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with each and every one of us every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series Horror Storytime dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky. And get some sleep, if you care. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at Otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button 
to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.